Frank Carpenter's way. Why don't you guys get up on your feet, find somebody and tell them good morning. Operation Christmas Child, I am a international missionary. You feel like you're doing your job or what God has called you to do when you see that unity of other fellow believers coming together in one common cause. Knowing that we're making a difference, knowing that we get to make a global difference together and it unites the local churches together both in the states and internationally. 
At the same time, it's getting people locally to think globally. It's a simple way for people to think about the world and not just think about it, but actually do something. Every single shoebox is a child who's meeting Christ. And just remembering the importance of every box and really just leaving the rest of it to God. The work of Operation Christmas Child is having quite a big impact. Jesus loves you. A box is not just a gift. In the hands of the local pastors, these boxes can be used as a tool to touch a whole community. They never seen that someone care for them, someone give for them. When I see a smile face of a children, just like inspiring me <coughs> to serve ministry. They are not only getting these gift boxes, but they also get the greatest gift booklet that they can take home and read that Jesus is the greatest gift of all. From the inside, I want to say thank you for OCC. Thank you for a beautiful time. So thank you so much. Uh, we intentionally invest a lot of time in training our team in order to make sure that the gospel is clearly communicated throughout our outreach events and the Greatest Journey classroom. We want to disciple to make a, a stronger foundation of empowering the new generation. They know the story of God and they can tell others by using the books. Every shoebox is really the beginning of the journey of evangelism and discipleship, and that leads into multiplication. And the multiplication of lives, the multiplication of churches, really impact on communities and a ripple effect around the world. You begin the process as you pack a shoebox. We, we value shoebox, and we thank you for the, the hand who packs the box. We're part of a team, and we're partners in the gospel through Operation Christmas Child and through Samaritan's Purse. Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. I, I gotta tell you something. I am, uh, you know, I, I, like you, get asked for money from so many different organizations, and all of them really, really good. And, uh, but I'm cynical enough to know that the advertising I get isn't usually what you actually get for that dollar. But I have had the privilege, as I've told you before, to go to, uh, to Panama and actually be on four or five distributions down there. And it is exactly like the video every time. Every box is handed to a kid. And there are, I, I, we were out outside of a school and there were hundreds of kids sitting there. And every box given to a kid, somebody looked in their face and said, Jesus loves you so much. And then they get, they get the uh, Greatest Journey magazine with it, which is about salvation. And uh, what is crazy, and I know some of you haven't done boxes, and maybe this will help you, but when they open the box, there's all these cool toys. I mean, they've never seen a football, a lot of these kids, but they're throwing them at each other. But then they stop, and they sit on the ground, and they look at the picture of the people and the notes written. It's the most incredible thing. In all four distributions, the kids set their toys aside to look and... And the things that you write, they feel like they have friends in America. In fact, one of the weirdest questions you're asked when you're on a distribution is, do you know this person? Uh, they just, it just blows their mind. And I, I, the, what's really cool about Samaritan's Purse and Operation Christmas Child is, is uh, in, 
It touches our heart that it's a Christmas. It, it touches the season. But the, actual, the reality is that these go out through the year. They have to be transported all over the world. And I don't know if you've been watching the videos online we've been showing, but I mean, they get carried by yaks. You saw a camel on here. They do it by helicopter in some of the most remotest parts of the world. In fact, I understood, I understand that in certain parts of the Middle East in countries that can't be named, that they're also taken in. But they only go in where there is a pastor present that has been trained by Samaritan's Purse to do the follow-up. And the follow-up is an 11-week discipleship course. Uh, so the gospel is presented and discipleship is done. And as I've shared with you in past years, what's really amazing is most pastors across the globe have no formal training in discipleship, have no idea what it is. And this models discipleship for them. So it teaches them how to do it. Uh, it's just, man, i got to tell you something. Samaritan's Purse is the most phenomenal ministry. And uh, if you're looking for a ministry to be a part of, it is, uh, of all the ministries, and there's lots of good ones, I think it's the finest missionary venture uh, that, that there is. It, it can be a little annoying, but because they have so few vocational staff members, most are volunteers, if you ever serve them, you end up getting letters all the time from them. That's how they structure their leadership. But it is, it is a wonderful, wonderful ministry. So be involved. I want to thank so many of you who have already signed up to help. So what does this have to do with Carpenter's Way? We're not just collecting boxes. If you haven't done a box, do a box. If you can't afford it, then just come serve. Uh, but basically, starting tomorrow morning, uh, we will be the uh, regional hub for Operation Christmas Child. So about, it's about 50 or 60 miles in every direction. Basically, each community has a collection center, a church. And then they put them in big boxes and bring them to us. And then we put them in bigger boxes. And then we, a week from tomorrow, we will load three semi-trailers. We, we had so many more last year, we're actually bringing a third semi-trailer in to load up. And we need your help to load it. Men next Monday or strong women. <laughs> Sorry, no offense. So uh, strong women and even men can help next Monday. <laughs> I want to be up with the times. Um, but, uh, but, but we need your help. Uh, this week, if, if you can't lift boxes, we register every box. Uh, we thank them. We give little uh, things to those who bring boxes in. We have times out there where you can come and sit. Um, we have two times of the day where boxes are, are dropped off. But in the middle of the day, people still come because they don't read well. Americans aren't good at reading instructions. So we're hoping to add somebody each day that can come help the staff so we're able to continue what we do. If you're able to, uh, I think it's like... I don't know, it's like 1 or 2 in the afternoon to like 4 or something like that. If you're, offer, if you're willing to give a couple hours, and you don't have to be strong. You just have to be able to greet somebody. We sure appreciate your help. But it's going to be an exciting weekend. For those of you who are new at Carpenter's Way or those who haven't figured us out yet, the holiday season, <clears throat> we go into the busiest week of the year outside of Vacation Bible School starting tomorrow morning with Operation Christmas Child. This ends next Monday. Uh, it's over by 5 o'clock, I think, or 6 o'clock Monday night. And then we... And then that's when Chastity, who oversees all this, give her a big hug. She's not being paid at all for this, and it is a painful process. Uh, don't be mean to her this week, or we will kill you. I, I say that in love. Um, <clears throat> but uh, then she, she has to register everything, get the trucks closed. So about Monday night, around 7 or 8, those, truck, those trailers are locked up. And then we turn this next Sunday afternoon into a big, huge restaurant, uh, cafeteria, place to eat, because next Tuesday night, so this ends Monday night, Tuesday night is our agape feast, and that is after a year of, of serving and ministry, once a year we come together for a big church-wide potluck, and there'll be 350-ish uh, people in this room just eating, 
and uh, you're wondering where the food comes from, you bring it. It is the dream Thanksgiving meal because you bring the two side dishes that you wish that are your favorite and then everybody gets to eat everybody else's side dishes. And it, the, the evening is not a service, it's just dinner together. It's, it's saying hi to each other, it's having a, a party before your parties begin. So that is next uh, Tuesday evening. So starting tomorrow morning through next Monday afternoon, we have a Operation Christmas Child. Next Tuesday night is uh, the Agape Feast. And then Thanksgiving goes through. And man, we, we run into Christmas season where we celebrate and serve the Lord. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful time of year. Uh, we'll have our Christmas celebrations that you can bring family, friends, neighbors to. And uh, it's just... I want to remind you, this is our season. This is not the world's season. It's not Santa Claus's season. It's Jesus' season. It's his birth where the promised Messiah, promised 2,000 years before his birth, promised 5,000 years before his birth, the one who would crush Satan's head was born in Bethlehem, just like prophesied, so that we could have hope this morning, you guys. It's all about Jesus, and, uh, and, and it's our season to celebrate. So we, we get rid of a lot of our ministry real early before Thanksgiving, and then we go to celebrate, and we encourage you to be involved over the next month. Um, would you open your worship guides, please? Uh, because there's some things I do want to highlight this week. If you're visiting with us or watching online, thanks for being with us. Uh, we're in week 37 of a short series on Who is Jesus? Uh, there's only 622 weeks left in this series, and we will have all of the important answers. Uh, I, I'm just kidding. Uh, there is an insert, folks, about uh, you, uh, some dates and all that you want to have for the Christmas season, so please do that. Um, ladies, there's a ladies' event. Are sign-ups still going on? So you need to purchase tickets. If you can't afford them, we will find a way to pay for them for you. Don't let money keep you from coming. Uh, just let Julie or one of her team know that you need a free ticket, and we will make sure you get one. Um, but that is important. We want you to be involved in that. Again, there is about, we just redid our data stuff in the office, and, and we have found that there's about 900 people that are actively involved in Carpenter's Way, if you ever wonder what the numbers are. That's a lot of folks. On Sundays, we run anywhere from 450 to 550. That means you don't get to know each other in this room. And so we have these Bible studies and smaller groups so you can get to know each other. And this is one of those events, and it's, uh, it's, it's going to be great. So at the table, ladies, if you'd like to come, even if it's your first week and you'd like to get to know each other, this is the time. That's a, an event to do that. I mentioned the Agape Feast, the information there, Operation Christmas Child. Um, oh, annual business meeting was last week. Everything passed, so thank the Lord for that. We appreciate your involvement, all eight of you. Um, there was only eight that laughed at that. We were laughing at the rest of you. Did you see this? This is cool. Did you see this? I gave all $733,000. That's how good of a person I am. I know that's a lie. <laughs> that's a lie. Okay. Hey, listen. We, uh, if you don't know, about a year and a half ago, we started to do some renovation. It was very necessary. The men and women's restroom we're adding a nursing room because our church growth is mostly through babies, which is good. We like babies. And then uh, also, we need more Sunday school class. So we are taking the building between this and the student room. And we had uh, um, an architect design that, Mark Strong, art, designed that for us for an adult discipleship wing. And so the amount, the cost of that in total was $733,000. And between your giving... Between some money we were able to take for our budget and between the sale of our property, we've got that and $324 left over. Yeah. How cool is that? 
$324. And with that $324, we're buying chicken for next week's agape feast. So, <laughs> hallelujah. So, a couple things that you don't hear pastors say very often. Please don't give any more money for the building. How about that? I mean, that's just... how $324 God gave us extra. <clears throat> I took Julie out to dinner yesterday and... <laughs> Now, it's just, it's just so cool, you guys. It's so cool. I want to remind you, this is just a building. We are Carpenter's Way Church, but what a nice place to meet. And uh, over, the, over the 11 or 12 years we own this, we've been able to do the roof and the new air conditioning units and stuff. God's just allowing us to keep it. And I know it's not perfect, but neither are we. What a wonderful place to meet. So thank you. Thank you guys for giving. Um, I, I don't know. I don't know what else to say except... Our building's paid for, our renovation's going to be paid for, and we can focus on ministry. And uh, we have no debt. How cool is that, you guys? Yeah, me too. Because I'm the guy who worries about all that. I shouldn't, I know, but I'm, that's, my, that's my sin. That's, that's is worrying. But you know what? It always works, because everything I worry about never happens. So you can thank me after. I think that does it. I need to be quiet, right? Jim Kennedy said this morning in Bible study that I'm not funny. Take that, Jim. I got a bunch of laughs just now. <laughs> I'm going I'm to ask our ushers to come forward at this time as we prepare for our offering. Um, I do want to remind you that uh, the building funds, that, that is separate from our normal giving. And as we get towards the end of the year, like we usually do, we fall behind. So as the year comes to a close, if you would remember us in your year-end giving, uh, maybe put a little extra in there. We need to make up for our shortfall for the year. Uh, we don't mix those monies. We don't take money from building and put it for general fund or general for building unless it's designated for that. So I just want to make you aware of that. Continue to give faithfully. It's not time to stop giving or I'll get really skinny. And our 14 missionaries and the International Mission Board that we support and Operation Christmas Child and the other things we do. Thanks, you guys. I love being family with you. It is so fun. So let's pray. Lord, thank you for all of the good things that are going on today. Um, thank you that we can celebrate um, these people's faithful giving that allows us to pay off um, this new renovation. And now as we move forward to get it done, we pray that you keep the safe, the workers safe. Allow us not to be distracted with facilities. Lord, I, there are people in our church family this morning that are, that are hurting. We think of Paula Havard. We pray you would thank you that yesterday uh, she, she, she is healing and that she continues to improve. We pray that you would continue to heal her and allow her to get out of the hospital. Uh, we think of Dolores who is battling cancer right now, Father. Uh, we pray that as she's going through chemo that you would give her strength that the doctors would be able to adjust it. Lord, I, I know I'm, I'm forgetting and I, I, I hate that. I just, for all of those, Father, that are hurting and struggling right now, be a present help um, in time of trouble. Father, we think of Lynn Prothrow, who had a, a stroke months ago and is struggling with arthritis pain, and, and his wife, it's just so tiring. I pray you give them strength and let them know they have not been forgotten and we love them. Father, I pray for the churches in this community that are opening your word this morning, whether they be Baptist churches or Bible churches or Assemblies of God churches or Lutheran, those that are opening your word. Father, you promised that your word would not return void. I pray you bless those churches. I pray that men and women will come to know you and, and Christians would be encouraged. Father, we think of our missionaries and our family that are traveling and some that are sick. Would you be with them? And Thank you that we can celebrate you this morning. And now, Father, as we get busy with Operation Christmas Child, we pray for every box that's going to be donated. 
every person that's going to be served and will be serving those being served. Father God, thank you that above all else you reign and we can trust you. For those visiting us this morning, I pray that they will have enjoyed their time with us and we can encourage them and love on them a little bit. But at the end of the day, may we know you better. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. As the offering plate passes by, if you're, uh, if you're able this morning, just stand and worship with us.
no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because we belong to him, the power of the life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weaknesses of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body, like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that just he did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature but instead follow the spirit
You give life, you are love, you bring light to the darkness, you give hope, you restore every heart that is broken. Thank you. 
more time. Children and our lungs, so we pour out. yesterday you can be seated that just kind of shocked me it was a mocking of why the church gathers and I think sometimes we forget to think about why we do what we do and that that song answers the question why do you sing songs and maybe you're new to the church or maybe this is weird to get together with people you don't know and sing we sing songs of praise to God because it's his breath that's in our lungs we believe that at the beginning and the end of the day it's all about God he is our only hope. And if you have any wonder why we don't put our hope in politics, just turn on the news. Why we don't put our hope in this country. Read the history of the Roman, the, the, the Roman nation. We put our hope in God, family. We put our hope in God. So I want to remind you of that. Put your hope in God. Sing songs of praise. Put your hope in God because it is His breath in our lungs. So this morning... As we gather, I, I'm going to need you. I know you brought your heart. I know you brought your hands for worship. But I need you to engage your brains this morning because we're going to get a little lofty. And uh, it's important. It's important. It's important that you understand what we're going to get through today. And, and some of what I'm going to share with you this morning is going to go against stuff you've been taught your whole life. And so I'm going to begin by warning you not to believe me. Trust the text. And as I go through, I'm going to make a case for something that may, again, push back on something you've believed or been taught your whole life. And all I'm asking you to do is to engage a different line of thinking and decide for yourself what's true. Because at the end of this morning, which is only going to be 90 minutes long, this is teasing, but at the end of this time this morning in the Word, I'm going to explain to you why this matters. Because it has had a huge, looking at this scripture from a particular point of view, has had a significant impact on the church today in 2019. All right, so we're going to jump in. For those of you who are visiting with us or on online, we are right now answering the question, who is this man? So we're studying together the scriptures, the, the four gospels, putting them in harmony, trying to put them in as much contextual order as we can uh, to discover that. When Jesus began gathering the men around himself that would become the disciples and we would one day know as the apostles, his invitation for them was not get on your knees and pray. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, right now I want you to commit your life to me. That's not how it started. That actually came along later when he told them to drop their nets and follow him and he would make them fishers of men. But his first call to the apostles, the guys we know are apostles, or the disciples, was to follow. Check him out. Now I know again in the church we interpret that as complete commitment. That's not what Jesus asked of them. Uh, he asked them just to follow, to listen to him teach, to watch him do miracles, to watch him interact day and night, and decide if he is worthy of following. His invitation to commit their lives to him would come at a later time. And as we go through this study together, I ask you, and he, God is asking us in this life to do the very same thing, to simply look at how he lived, to look at what he did, 
look at what, listen to what he taught, listen to how he interacts with the disciples, and decide for ourselves if he, in fact, is worthy of our life. And if not, let's go home and get ready for football. Let's not waste our Sunday. At, at some point in our lives, especially those of you who grew up in the church, and I know you're believers, a great majority of you, uh, also a great majority of you accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior at a very, very young age, but there has to come a point in your life when you decide who Jesus Christ is in order to decide if he's worthy of giving every part of your life to him. And I think sometimes in the church, the mojo is don't ask those questions, and I want to encourage you to ask those questions. Because I think, I, I'm nervous for East Texas, that in the Bible Belt, we have tons of Christians, but only a few actually going into heaven. There is a major difference between between being a Christian religiously and having a relationship with God. And in our study, in our 36 weeks up to this point, I hope you have seen that this is not about Jesus starting a religious movement. This was about Jesus Christ wanting a relationship with people and offering himself to be the, the, her her the bridge to that relationship. I keep trying to use bigger words, but I'm not that smart, so I shouldn't try. So we now find ourselves at the time of Jesus' ministry when the ultimate reason for his coming was quickly approaching. In today's text, Jesus begins, and I'm going to stick with my notes or I'll never get through it in time, so bear with me as I read a little more than usual. In today's text, Jesus begins to explain to his disciples clearly, and they're going to use that word, he begins to explain to his disciples clearly what is about to happen to him in the coming months. And you know what's about to happen because we look back on it. He is going to be, uh, he's going to go to Jerusalem, he's going to be arrested, and he's going to be killed, and three days later he's going to rise from the dead. Up to this point, Jesus has been making comments about it, but now in today's text, is the first time he is going to actually explain it to him. He's going to begin the conversation where he does this. And this morning's text is going to take us in about a seven or eight day period. It's a week-long period where a discussion starts and it ends with the Father, God the Father, actually putting an exclamation point on this conversation. But it be Jesus begins the conversation where he explains this by actually addressing one main question that the disciples struggle with, that, his, that people checking him out struggles with, and I think that we're struggling with even today, and that's why we're doing this series. Jesus, in this text today, is actually going to answer the question, who am I? Who am I really, really? And I, I want to remind you that this was very, very difficult for the disciples. I want to remind you that it is only recently, in recent weeks in our study, <coughs> excuse me, it is only recently that the disciples have decided that he really is the Son of God. Having spent almost three years with him up to this point, it is after Jesus lets Peter walk on water and they get into the boat that the disciples say to Jesus, what did they say to him? You really are the Son of God. Again, as I've said every week, to which Jesus, the Divine One, God himself looks at them in, in, the, in their Greek language or Aramaic and says, duh, I've been telling you that since the beginning. I mean, they are finally figuring out, just like us, uh, there are moments of our life where we kind of go, wow, you really are in charge. And God goes, well, yeah, I've been telling you that. But God's patience is great. So we're going to meet our brains this morning. We're going to get deep. We're going to look together this morning at a text that takes us through about a seven or eight day period uh, where the disciples um, actually are going to interact with Jesus as all three members of the Trinity are going to identify who Jesus the Messiah really is. So let's pray together. I forgot to pray this morning for Doug Enfinger. For those of you who know Doug, he had triple bypass surgery. We've got a lot of sick people at Carpenter's Way. So if you're new, you bring the health to us. So thank you. But uh, we do want to pray for Doug. Uh, the surgery went well. They're having blood pressure issues, which is always often common after. So let's just take a moment and pray for him. And what I really want to pray for is that we understand the text in a new way. 
Father, we thank you that we can gather this morning in this building and, and ask you to speak to us, and that's what we ask for this morning. I pray that the words of Mark would fade away so that the words of God can endure forever. We think of Doug and Pam as he's in the hospital right now recovering from this major surgery. We pray that you would keep his pain at a minimum. We pray that they would regulate his blood pressure and that he would feel your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 16, verse 13. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So the Son of Man, for those of you who haven't studied the scriptures, is the most common name that Jesus uses for himself. To the Jews, this was a significant name. To the Jews, they would have, this would have immediately taken them back to the book of Daniel, where Daniel looks up into heaven and actually sees the Son of Man. It's a name for God, the Messiah. Isaiah talks about the Son of Man. John the Apostle, when he writes Revelation, is gonna, when he sees somebody sitting on the throne, he refers to him as the Son of Man. While in Jesus' ministry, he refers to himself at other times as the Son of God, here is where he refers to himself. It is most common for him to refer to himself as the Son of Man. And what Jesus is doing here is not investigating the world's views of him so that he could uh, manipulate his message. He is, as always, beginning a conversation with the disciples that they need to have. Who do they say that I am? Who do they say that the Son of Man is? Verse 14, well, they replied, some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah. You're the son of the living God. Peter had learned well. Peter remembered walking on water with him. And Peter had finally come. This is one of the few good answers Peter gives before the book of Acts. He says the right thing. And Jesus responds in verse 17 with this. You are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Now, look, this is another one of those statements that Jesus makes that goes against a lot of the teaching of today, and I want to just say sorry, but it is what it is. I have no idea how a person can hear the gospel 300 times, and then one day when they're driving down the road listening to a song, give their life to Christ. I have no idea how these people, these people in the crowd, that, that see the same miracles as the disciples, who ask the same question as the disciples, who listen in as he trains his disciples, I have no idea why they still think he's a prophet, but these guys have figured out that he is truly the Son of God, except Jesus' explanation that the Father has taught you this. I have no idea why the Scripture teaches that only, and in John 6 it says this about four times, only those who the Father draws comes to me. I have no idea how that works or why it works. I just know the Scripture teaches it. And in your study of who Jesus is, in your, in your decision-making process as to who Jesus is, you're either going to take him at face value as he speaks of himself or you're not. You can't take, and this is the mistake the church is making today, the church picks and chooses which part of Jesus they like, the world picks and chooses what part of Jesus they like, and they reject the rest. That's, that's not being honest. That's not okay. You have to accept Jesus at face value or not. And in this text, he praises Peter, kind of, but he actually says, no man taught you this. You couldn't learn this from a man. The only one that could reveal this to you is the Father. Again, I have no idea how that works. None of us do, but it's affirmed here and in many places in the gospel. This affects me personally, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but this affects me personally because it has absolutely changed how I pray for people. My prayer for the lost now is... Not just, Father, save them. My prayer is, Father, remove the blinders from their eyes so that they can see you. Father, help them see. Help blind eyes to see. 
That's our prayer, so that they can see who you are. Because the truth is, it is only God that reveals to us who he really, really is. I, this, this thing I looked at yesterday was a picture of a group that's mocking what we do every Sunday. And it was a picture of a beautiful worship center, and there was a crucifix at the front. And their comment was, if you go tomorrow and attend this church, they will ask for money. They will sing songs that you don't know. Uh, oh, they'll ask, it was just, it was so mocking. Oh, and they will, they will bow to a, a zombie on a pole. And I thought to myself, that's what this looks like without God's opening of our eyes. That is what it looks like. I mean, you may be offended by that and you may resent that, but the truth is, to the lost, we look like haters. Because they're not listening to the message, which is not of judgment, but of salvation. The message of Jesus Christ was not condemnation. It was forgiveness and salvation from condemnation. The message of the gospel is good news. But for those who don't need, feel they need to be saved or want to be saved, it's a message of condemnation. You don't allow me to be who I was, who, who I was born to be. That's not true. Actually, it is true. God wants to make you the way he created you to be. But that does take surrender. And so we are so blessed to have our eyes opened by the Father, just like Peter here. Verse 17, let's move on. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Wow. He doubles down on that thought. Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid, and what does that look like? Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. This is a huge text. And I know for those of you who are not doctrinally minded, it seems like let's move on to a cooler story. Except that if you understand this text, it affects every part of what we do on a regular basis. And so we're going to spend time there. It contains so much doctrine, doctrine that has deeply affected the way that the church sees herself today and how we, uh, how we see Christendom and how Christendom has been run for the past 2,000 years. It's important for us to look at this. Now, I want to warn you for a second time. For those of you who grew up in the church and are doctrinally minded, I'm going to take you a different route because of the Greek. And it may make you question, that's okay. I am not here to convince you. I'm here to tell you what I have learned from my study of Scripture, and you need to wrestle with that. Okay, so here we go. Much of Christendom today believes that this text, so you have Jesus having this conversation with the disciples. They're all sitting around. Who do they, who do they say that I am? Well, they think you're a prophet. Okay, who do you say that I am? Well, you're, you're God's son. Good for you, Peter. Pat, pat, pat. Good for you. Hey, Peter, you're a little rock. The Father has taught you this. But upon this rock, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. You've heard this talk. And for the most part, the church teaches, especially because of the Roman Catholic teaching on this, that God has built the whole structure of the church on Peter. They think that the Peter is the little rock being referred to here. The problem is that the Greek doesn't say that. You see, the Greek uses two different words or two endings of words differently for Peter. So I'm going to act this out five or six times because I want you to know why I believe what I believe. So he's having this conversation with the disciples. Peter answers properly. Jesus praises Peter and tells him the Father has taught him that. 
So his, his instruction comes from on high. So authority and truth is found there. Keep that in mind. Then he looks at Peter and he says, so Simon, your name and you are going to be known as Little Rock, Petros. But upon the Petros, or Pet, P-E-T-R-O-S, that's Peter, P-E-T-R-A-S, which is significant in Greek, I'm going to build my church, and even the gates of Hades, which is what the Greek says, will not prevail against him. This is a, not a huge thing when you hear it in English, but it is a huge thing because if he was talking about Peter, he would have used the exact same word. He would have used, and it's upon that rock right there, Petrus, the same word, I'm going to build my church. But he doesn't use that. He goes on, actually, let me finish the statement, and then I'm going to bring you back, and then I'm going to tell you why this matters. So just use your brain, take a breath, and stick with me. Matthew 16, verse 21, he goes on to say, from then on, Matthew tells us, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem, that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but, that's important, he would be killed, the Son of Man, I'm going to die, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Matthew, and in a few moments, we're going to jump over to the Gospel of Mark, connect what Jesus said to Peter about the rock, the cornerstone of the church, and how the gates of Hades, which is what the Greek says, the English is translated as the gates of hell, so we think it's a battle with Satan. That's not what this is. I'll explain it in a moment. Matthew and Mark both connect with what Jesus said about the cornerstone of the church that is about to be birthed, and how the gates of Hades will not prevail against this rock or cornerstone, and the fact that Jesus from this point on begins to clearly reveal that he must die. Most likely, again, you've been told that Jesus is saying Peter is the rock. And much of the church to this day, especially the Catholic church, is built upon the Pope. It's called the papacy. And it's the idea that Peter, uh, being the first Pope of the church, is the cornerstone, not just of the church, but also of truth. And even to this day, even though you are probably not Catholic and may not keep up with Catholic doctrine, even today the Catholic Church has a problem with the number of priests that they have because people aren't going into the priesthood, and so they are invoking the Pope to an ex-cathedra, which means that he sits on a golden chair holding a scepter, and he declares that priests can now be married, although for the past 2,000 years or most of the history of the Roman Catholic Church, priests were not to be married. Why can he do that? Because it is believed that doctrinal truth within the Catholic Church is from the Scriptures as interpreted by the Pope when he's sitting in ex-cathedra. In other words, they take this text and they say, oh look, what he binds on earth can be bound in heaven. Peter is the cornerstone of the church. He's an apostle. And so the popes through the history have had that kind of authority. They can do whatever they want. So the true authority of the church, according to that translation, is in fact the Pope or Peter. Why does that matter? Because I would argue that the Protestant church does the same thing with senior pastors. You may not think there's a pope, but you, you have submitted yourself to great teachers and pastors that you respect and love and may have sincere hearts, but you've stopped studying the scriptures for yourself. Because we don't believe Jesus is the cornerstone of the church outside of our theology or a song or a doctrine, but we don't live like he is. I take you back to a comment we've had during this whole series. Most people, when they get caught in adultery or looking at porn or a really grave sin that just freaks them out, want to have a doctrinal discussion with me on whether or not you can lose your salvation. When a truly repentant person goes back to the Savior. Do you understand that? If you truly realize what you've done is devastating, you go back to the one who can condemn you. 
You don't go to the pastor who can make you feel better about your sin. You shouldn't feel good about your sin. When you realize you're a sinner, you go not to the pope or the priest or the pastor. You go to Jesus, who is the one who can forgive all sin. Unless he's not. Unless it's the pope. And I, again, argue that it not only has affected the Catholic Church, but even the Protestant Church. Most likely, again, you've been told that Jesus is saying that Peter is the rock upon which the church is built, which, was, which would be birthed uh, a few years later at Pentecost, uh, or a year later at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The problem with this, here I go, I'm going to go through it one more time, is something weird happens in the Greek that makes that unlikely. Again, the word for Peter, which means little rock in English, and Petros, the, which means the foundation or cornerstone, the ending tells you who they're talking about. When he says to Peter, you will be called Little Rock, he's talking to him. And that ending in Greek tells you it's talking about him. But when he says, so here's what it happens. Peter, good for you. The Father has taught you this. But upon this rock, the ending says he's talking about himself. Upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. And even the gates of hell, now get this. Um, the gates of hell are not... I'm sorry for much of the teaching we've heard on, you know, the church. It's the church he's talking about. He's talking about the rock. The gates of hell will not prevail against the rock. How do we know that? Again, the Greek tells us who he's talking about. The gates of hell in Jewish think is not, it actually is the gates of Hades, and it's a reference to death, the walk through the doorway of death. It's not a reference to Lucifer or the demonic or even, even Satanism. In Jewish think, what they would have heard is that even death itself won't have victory. That explains why Matthew, the very next verse, says that from this point on, he clearly talked about his, what was going to happen, that he must die, come back from the dead three days later, because it's talking about Jesus. It's not talking about Peter. It's not talking about us. It's not talking about humans. He's talking about Jesus being the cornerstone of the church. This isn't just, when we come to a tough text, and I, I know you know this, but when we come to a difficult test, one of the basic hermeneutical principles or principles for Bible study is you let Scripture define Scripture, right? You guys know that, right? You look in other places to explain. Much of Jesus' teaching is complicated. Paul, for instance, explains a lot of Jesus' teaching. Would you not agree with that? In the New Testament, many of his epistles have Jesus' words being explained. Peter explains them. Well, look at this. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. For no one can lay any foundation other than the one we already have, Jesus Christ. That's Paul talking about the church. No one can lay any foundation. Peter's not the little rock or the cornerstone. Jesus is. Peter himself, who was part of this conversation in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4, you are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. So, so not only is Jesus the cornerstone of the church, because some will say, okay, pastor, but you're picking straws. And again, I know that some of you are like, this is a little bit boring. I'm going to make it valuable in the end. Stick with me. Some might say, okay, so Jesus is the cornerstone of the church, his death, burial, resurrection, but then it's the, it's the Pope. Then it's the church leadership. The problem with that is Peter says he's a living cornerstone. In other words, he's not just a foundational piece of rock that sits in the corner and then we build something on top. He refers to him as a living stone that's building God's temple, rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. And even the Greek talks about that great honor continuing. He continues to be the leadership of the church. Paul in Ephesians 2.20 actually talks about the relationship of the prophets and the apostles referring to the scriptures. 
and the relationship of Jesus. Ephesians 2.20, together we are his house, the church, the body of Christ. We're built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Aha, pastor, that's it. Except that he says next, but the cornerstone or the rock is Jesus Christ himself. So despite the fact that most churches, Catholic and Protestant, say that Peter's the cornerstone upon which the church is built, he is the rock, that's not what Scripture says. And again, I want to take a side note and just say, you need to study this stuff because guys like me are manipulating guys like you. We're getting you to do our thing by getting you not, we're playing off your dumbness. And I know this is tough stuff. But y'all kind of know this, but we got to put this together because I'm telling you, right now, in our culture, in our time, the church is redefining what sin is. And guess who gets to make that determination? Guys in pulpits like this. The Pope for the Catholic Church and pastors and authors and writers in other churches. We have effectively allowed this kind of thinking to determine that man is uh, the, the people God puts in charge. Peter, uh, hey Peter, you're now the rock. Peter, take control of this. And I'm telling you that Jesus Christ not only is the foundation of the church of the cornerstone, he is the living foundation and cornerstone. And to this day, he is still the arbiter of truth. He is the only one in which you can find forgiveness. He's the only one in which you can find salvation. He's the only one that can actually save you. And yet we do everything to avoid Jesus. And I'm here to tell you that I'm tired of having, not, not tired of you, but I'm tired of the whole eternal security debate. And, and Chad and I have been talking about this for eight years. But I actually think that, that, that we're right, that once you're truly saved, you're always saved. I don't want to take that away. But I think we use that as an excuse to ask, how much can I sin and still be saved? How far can I go? You know, this whole thing wasn't about us balancing spiritual and secular life. This whole thing was about living spiritually. That's what Jesus said, follow me. I, I'm getting ahead of myself. Please understand that there is a vested interest in humans, putting humans in charge of the church and the truth, because then we can manipulate humans. But when God is in charge, you must bow or walk away. If I can convince the Pope of this, then it must be right. If I can convince a pastor of this, let me be specific. Same-sex relationships have always been sin, and they will always be sin. To which God's church says, amen. Kind of half-hearted because you don't want to be offensive. I would like to add that sex outside of marriage has always been a sin and will always be a sin. Thank you for a louder one on that. It is crazy to me that the church has defined sacred marriage as between a man and a woman. Sacred marriage is between a godly man and a godly woman. It's not a question of genitals. I know some of you have kids in here, and now you're going to have to explain that. It's okay. Show them a picture. Draw it. The truth is it's not a genital question. It's a spiritual question. Am I going to regret this later? Let me go ahead and make... I'd like to go ahead and make the apology now. This is why Mark's not in charge of the church. Jesus Christ is. But, but you, understand, you understand the issue. The, the, the issue is that Jesus Christ is in charge, and, and we keep wrestling away authority from him. How about that crazy teaching that David taught that how dare I take a, a sword against God's anointed, and pastors use that to shut you up. Don't you ever shut up when you've got the word on your side. You are the body of Christ, the church. And yes, it is our job to edify and equip. But boy, we're wrong on something, everybody but me. But we're wrong on things. Actually, in the last month, you've heard me say I was wrong on something I taught. It's not fun, but it's why I do it. I've got to remind you not to follow me. You follow Jesus and we'll walk together. 
We'll walk together to him. He's the cornerstone. We are the church. God is building us up into a temple that brings people to himself. We know the truth from the writing of the prophets and apostles, but he is the active, living cornerstone of that, not a man. We can't take or allow anybody to take his rightful place. If we do, if you are more in love with Beth Moore, or I want to think of some really good ones, John MacArthur, or whoever your hero is, if you follow them and love with them more than the scriptures, you are vulnerable to real deception. Be careful of people like me. It is lazy to trust people like me. Know the scriptures. And somebody out there is thinking, well, why should I even come to church? Because it's what we do to encourage each other, to edify each other. And it's my job to, to tick you off a little bit and get you into the word. It's to show you where you've been misled so that you're controlled. And I don't even think most of the pastors know they're doing it. Here we go. Reading on, verse 18. Now I say to you that you're Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and all the powers of hell won't conquer it. I want to put this all together, but actually I'm running out of time, so I'm going to skip. (laughs) Let's start, uh, uh, let's go to verse 13, and I'm going to read this whole text one more time so we can jump through it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, "Who who do people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. Now I say to you that you're Peter, which means little rock, but upon this rock I'll build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it, or death itself won't prevail against this rock. And I will give you, he's referring to the apostles now, and they had no clue what he was talking about, and I'm not going to get into this today. As we get closer to the crucifixion, I'm going to explain the difference between an apostle and a disciple. I'm going to talk about the authority that these men have that you see in Acts. But for now, he's going to give them the keys of the kingdom, and that's all I'm going to get into this this morning. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven, and whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Verse 20. Then he sternly warned the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. From then on, Jesus began to tell the disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. Now you know why he connected that? Because the cornerstone is going to be attacked by death, but even death won't have victory. And Jesus goes on to explain what that looks like. Because the disciples would have understood he was talking about himself. It's only the church today that thinks he's talking about some human, but he's not. And now we're going to jump to Mark 8 that picks up this story right here, and you're going to find out why God can't put a human in charge of his church. Then Jesus began to tell, verse uh, 31 of Mark 8. I feel so bad for our computer people. I throw them around so much. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. Verse 32. As he talked about this openly with his disciples, okay, take a breath. So you got the disciples around. Jesus just said, who does the crowd say that I am? Oh, prophet, who do you say that I am? Oh, uh, you're the Messiah. Good for you, Peter. Good for you. My father taught you that. Now, I want you to understand that on this rock, the the church is going to be built. And the gates of Hades 
Even death won't have victory over it. But look, when I leave, you're going to have the special authority. You're going to have keys to the kingdom. And you're going to be able to bind on earth and heaven what happens. And then from there, he begins to explain why that's going to be necessary. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise from the dead. And a few days later, uh, and then I'm going to ascend into heaven. And Peter's feeling pretty good. The little rock is feeling like a boulder. Because this conversation is still going on, and I want you to try to visualize it. I know it's been doctrinally so far, but visualize the picture. So Jesus begins talking about this, and the problem is Peter, the little rock who just had a moment with Jesus, takes him aside and begins to reprimand him for saying things that are discouraging the crowd. Now you know why the Pope can't be human. Because he's an idiot. Jesus just, a minute and a half ahead of time, patted him on the head and told him what a good job he was doing. Good job for understanding that. Great statement. You have identified me, brother. Good job. And then he goes on to explain to the disciples the authority they're going to have, and that he's going to die, and that he's going to rise from the dead. And Peter goes, hey, stop it. You're discouraging the troops. Peter can't even continue the sweet moment with Jesus for over 10 minutes, and he's rebuking God. Verse 33, Jesus turns around. He looks at his disciples. Are you kidding me? Then he reprimands Peter. Get away from me, Satan. That's, not, that's a lot different than God taught you this, just in case you're not clear. Get away from me, Satan. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Ouch. Jesus isn't done yet, but I want to make sure you understand that Peter, who has just been patted on the head by Jesus, being told he's listening to the Father, just rebuked God himself for saying things that are discouraging the crowd. And that's the problem with having a human pope. We only think about human things. That's why God in, in no way would ever put a man in charge, because we're idiots. Guys like me, we're always going by the whims, and Peter is worried about the crowd. Nothing's changed between then and now with pastors. I just want you to know that, except for me. I have it together. <laughs> You're laughing because I tell you I worry about it all the time. I mean, the truth is, God is still the cornerstone of the church. So when I worry about money, it should drive me to my knees, right? When I worry about you, it should drive me to my knees. I have prayed all week about this message because I know it's deeper than usual. I know it's tough. And I know that the, the flesh wants to go, well, what's the point of all this? But it's really important. So Jesus basically turns around to him. And what he says to him, and this is interesting too, what he says to him is not, you look like Satan right now. What he is saying to him is, you remind me of the 40 days I was in the wilderness with Lucifer who offered me to, to give me authority. You're actually rebuking me? Get, get, get over there behind that tree. I don't need this kind of temptation. I was already tempted. I don't need it. And Jesus doubles down. So get this. So Jesus just rebukes Peter. He says, you're at, you, you remind me of Lucifer in the wilderness. Just stop it. And by the way, I'd like to add a little note. I personally, this is my thought, I think Jesus likes what he's saying. I think Jesus is fully man and fully God, and he's not sinful, but I think Jesus likes the crowd. We all like a crowd. Jesus doesn't like it, but he calls him Satan because it tempts him. And by the way, if you don't think Jesus was tempted in the wilderness, you need to go back and read that story because he was tempted. Hebrews tells us he was tempted in every way that we are, only he didn't sin. So Jesus looks at Peter, he listens to him, and then Jesus doubles down. Then he calls to the crowd beyond Peter. So there's a large crowd out there. That's who Jesus said, who do they think I am? That, that group of people. Oh, they think you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? Peter answers right. Jesus pats him on the head. Then they go on to this discussion, and Jesus says, look, I'm going to die, but the ga gates of hell won't prevail against me. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise again. Peter's like, you're discouraging the flock. Jesus rebukes him. You sound like Lucifer the tempter. And he turns around, verse 34, calling to the crowd, 
to join his disciples. He says, hey, you guys on the outskirts, I know you want to hear what's going on. Why don't you come close? But if any of you wants to be my follower, you're going to have to give up your own way, take up your cross, and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you're going to lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you'll save it. What do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in this adulterous and sinful day, the Son of Man, again, referring to himself as God, my apologies to Jehovah's Witnesses, will be ashamed of that person when he enters in his glory of his Father with the holy angels. This got intense fast. Are you following what's going on here? Not at me if you are, because I'll go tell the story again. I, I, I want you to really see this. You see, this is a question. This is a conversation Jesus wants to have with these guys, so he starts the conversation. He, he pulls the hand grenade pen and he throws it in the middle of the room. Who does the crowd say that I am? He wants Peter to, mis, to misunderstand. He wants Peter to push back because he wants the crowd to understand that to be my follower, I'm not looking for people who like my miracles. I'm not looking for people who like what I do. I'm not even looking for people who like what I say. I'm looking for people who will bow the knee and even die for me. I need to apologize to every one of you that came, for, came to Christ being told that your life would be easier. It is better, it is not easier. Actually, it's not any harder, it's just as hard as with the world, only the world's going to hate us for following Jesus. But the truth is, and I'm going to talk to men for a second because we all love Crimson Tide. Next to Top Gun, it's the most Christian movie ever. There's a scene in Crimson Tide, and, and, and the movie is about, um, is about it, the, the storyline, and it's got some language in it, so I'm not encouraging you to watch it, although it's a very good movie. But... But, but there are two commanding officers of a nuclear sub. One is old school and one is new school. And the two get in a debate. The, the new one is Denzel Washington, who has a more philosophical approach to when we, when we send nukes off. And the old school guy says, when they tell me to send a nuke, I push the button and I say, good luck. So that's the conflict. And about uh, 45 minutes into the movie, there's a fire on a sub. And if anybody knows anything about subs, that's really bad news. They finally get the, si the, the fire out. And, 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 and the whole ship is alarmed and upset. And Denzel Washington goes to, who's the captain? Somebody help me out. Gene Hackman. Gene Hackman. Goes to Gene Hackman and says, sir, I just want you to know that the men are tired and discouraged and scared. And a nice word of encouragement might be nice from you. And he says, okay. And he grabs the microphone. And he says, attention, sub-warriors. It has come to my attention that you're discouraged and tired and fearful. Well, I just want you to know that this is a ship of war. Man up or get off my boat. Click. <laughs> That's what Jesus is doing. Seriously. Jesus said, in this world, you're going to have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome. I'm super sorry that, 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 we, were, that, that we were lied to, but that's only because you didn't read. I'm, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at us. The truth is, everything about giving control of your life over to Jesus is hard. I want to live forever in this life because I don't know what it's like to die. But Jesus says, trust me in death. I, I want health. But Jesus says, no, I'm going to give you scoliosis. Well, that's not very nice. I know. I want more money. I want more fill in the blank. We all want that. That's what makes us human. But Jesus asks us to be superhuman by giving control of our life to him. That's why he looks at the crowd and says, oh, are they leaving, Peter? Are you worried about them? Let me, let me clarify. I want you all in on my inner circle, but here's the cost. 
dying to your own will, picking up your cross and following me. And he's just finished for the first time explaining that he's going to die. So what he's asking the disciples and the, and the crowd to do is to give up all of their hopes for the future, pick up their cross, follow him to Calvary. And Peter had to be going, that did not go as intended. Verse, chapter 9, verse 1, Jesus went on to say, I tell you the truth, some standing here right now will not die before they see the kingdom of God arrive in great power. And in case you're not clear, they had no idea what the heck he was talking about. None. They had no idea. None. They just, again, this is Jesus rambling on about some esoteric thing that's going to happen in the future. They don't know. They're used to that. What they're thinking about is that he clearly said that I have to die. Not only does he have to die, but I have to die with him? What? What? Peter went from being taught by the Father something to being Lucifer in a few short minutes. What does that have to do with anything? Mark 9, verse 2 tells us what it has to do with everything. Jesus says to them, some of you before you die are going to see God in his glory. That's basically what he's saying. Six days later, very next verse, so he's, this is being connected by Mark. Six days later, Jesus took, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain to be alone. As the men watched Jesus' appearance, his appearance was transformed, and his clothes became dazzling white, far whiter than any earthly bleach could ever make them. So again, you know this is the Mount of Transfiguration. You've been taught this message has been preached. But in its context, this is incredible, even more incredible than just the Transfiguration. Verse 4, then Elijah and Moses appeared and began walking with Jesus. <laughs> wow. Could you imagine? Jesus had just said a week before that before you die, something amazing is going to happen. You're going to see God coming in his kingdom. You're going to see the kingdom of God in all of its glory. You're going to see that. A week later, three of them, Peter, James, and John, actually go up on a mountain alone with Jesus, and they see it. And not only is Jesus standing there dazzling and white in his glory, he doesn't look like the Jesus they've been following around. He looks more like the Jesus Isaiah sees in Isaiah 6 and, and, and John sees in Revelation 4. And then all of a sudden, two other people join him, Elijah and Moses. For those of you who studied this text, Elijah, theologians always see as a reference to the prophets. Literally, Elijah's there. So Peter sees him. Oh, look, there it is. There's the prophets right there. And then Moses is the law that God gave. So, so Peter, John, and James, three favorite characters in all of spiritual history are right in front of him. You have the laws, the prophets, and Jesus. And what does Peter do? This is another reason why you can't have a human pope. Peter exclaimed, so verse 4, let me read it. Then Elijah and Moses appeared and began talking with Jesus. So they're all high-fiving each other, good to see you. Peter exclaims, Rabbi, it's so wonderful for us to be here. Let me, let's make three shelters as a memorial, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And he did this because he really didn't know what else to say, for they were all terrified. And Mark and Peter have the same problem. When you don't know what to say, my mother said, don't say anything. Peter has a problem. Peter says what he's thinking, which is a wonderful problem to have. So we know what he's thinking. Do you know what he's doing? He's looking at him and he sees Jesus, his favorite leader, and his favorite rabbi, and he sees the law over here in Moses, and he sees Elijah, and they're all talking, and Peter's just overwhelmed. He's like, look, these are the three pillars of spiritual truth. Now I'm going to make three equal monuments to them. We're going to put shelters up, and we can go into what that means, but, but I'm going to put these shelters up. Jesus, would it be okay if we worshiped all three of you in this moment? Because even though Peter had just identified Jesus as the Son of God, he thinks Jesus, the law, and the prophets are equal. That's exactly what's going on here. He thinks they're equal to arbiters of truth. And this is where it's cool. 
And all of this is just for them. Then a cloud, verse 7, overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, That one is my dearly beloved son. Listen to him. Jesus. Moses representing the law of Moses. Even if you don't want to go there, that's fine. Elijah, three of the greatest characters in biblical truth. The Messiah, the prophet, the law. And Peter does what we would do. <gasps> we have all three. Wow. James, John, get on your knees. And Jesus doesn't even answer him. He still talks with Elijah and Moses. And the Father from heaven says, hey, bonehead. <laughs> Buddy, Peter, remember I taught you about who Jesus was. That one in the middle, that one. I know you like the laws. Prophets are good too. But that one in the middle, that's my son. You, listen to him. Peter, disciples, who does the crowd say that I am? They think you're a prophet. Who do you say that I am? Oh, you're the Messiah. Good for you. Peter, you're a rock. You're important. You're significant. You're going to be apostles to the Jews. Super important. But upon this rock, I'm going to build a church. And even death itself won't stop me. And what I mean by that is I'm going to die. And three days later, three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Now, you guys are important. And you're going to have authority beyond measure, you apostle. Jesus, Jesus, you're discouraging the crowd by talking about death. The disciples don't like that. Peter, stop it. Stop it, Peter. I have to do this. Hey, you want to be with me? Put your selfish ambition aside. Pick up your cross and follow me. Guys, before the week's out, before you die, some of you are actually going to see my kingdom in a way you can't even imagine. A week later, kingdom comes and Pope Peter decides to worship all three. And the Father speaks up on behalf of the Son. He says, that's the one you need to follow. This is a hugely significant text if you are a follower of Jesus because you are not a follower of the church, of the church's leadership, or the Pope. It is the job of the elders of a church and the pastors of the church to tell you what God says, not what they think about what God says. There is certainly room for us to share with you our ideas and thoughts, but you should never, ever follow Beth Moore or Mark Wilkie or John MacArthur or whoever else you want to follow. Don't you dare, because they can't save your soul, only Jesus can. You follow him off a cliff. You follow him fast and furiously off a cliff. Well, how do I relate to leadership in my church then? See them what they are. Men and women who study scriptures, who feed you, who try to nurture you. Who, who, uh, what is the role of the church then? To encourage one another, to spur one another on to love and good deeds. We gather to remind each other that the noise of, of Washington, D.C. right now does not affect our joy. Or our future. It may affect our comfort. We may... Be persecuted for what we believe. But if you're following a man, I'll always cave. But if you're following with God, it is worthy of sharing in the sufferings of Christ. If Jesus is our Pope and our only Pope, if Jesus is our cornerstone and our life force and the Holy Spirit within us is driving us to follow him off a cliff, then there is nothing in this life that can disappoint. There are things in this life that can terrify but not disappoint because the best thing that can happen for the child of God is 10 seconds after they breathe their last. They go home. Men and women, even the father in this story says, Peter, that's the one you should listen to. 
And Peter struggles with that throughout his whole ministry. Do you remember late in Acts, this is a story we don't talk about a lot, but late in Acts, Paul writes that he had to rebuke Peter publicly because he, for, he uh, refused to eat with Gentile pastors. Why? Because the law forbid it. Peter would always struggle. That's why you can't have a human pope. The church is founded on Jesus. So who is this guy? That's our question, right? He's everything. Well, break it down, okay? Everything. He's everything. He's your hope in this life. He's your hope in the next life. He's the one who provides what you know about him. He's the one who loves you. He's the one who saves you. He's the one who forgave you, continues to forgive, and will forgive you. He, he's the lover of your soul. He's also the judge, and he won't tolerate sin. Well, I'm a Christian, and I still struggle with sin, so how do you do that? Then walk closer. I struggle with sin. Actually, I don't struggle with sin. I just give into it sometimes. I actually like worrying. It makes me feel safe. <laughs> it's just so ridiculous, isn't it? We're all in this boat together. We're all struggling. And why? Because we, like Peter, forget that Jesus is the cornerstone. And i got to tell you something. This is hugely significant. Because as you go into Bible study in, in about two minutes, you're going to sit around a room and some are going to share why they believe one thing about this text or something about another or thoughts that they have. And the only question at the end of the hour that matters is, what does Jesus say about this? <laughs> Seriously. Sometimes I say dumb things from the pulpit and you're concerned that I've said something inappropriately or wrongly. And the truth is, before you, before you get me right, just find out if I'm right at all. Look at the scriptures. Confront me when I'm wrong. Be, well, that, that's, that's not fun. Could you be careful to make sure it's a big deal first? Because... Julie gets really mad at you when you confront me. <laughs> I'm just teasing. We're in this together. And what's our job together? To follow the cornerstone. Not Baptist news. Not evangelical highlights. Not the, not the Protestant work ethic. We are not here to make sure that there's a Republican in the White House or a Democrat. We're not here to do any of that. We are here to follow him. That's all. What does God want from me? To follow him. I, yeah, yeah, I got that. What else? No, that's it. There is no one. Is your marriage falling apart? What does he want you to do? Do you seek him in it? Are you single? Just want to be married. I know what you want, but what does he want? That's the question. What does he want? Or is he not your cornerstone? Look, I want to walk with God, but this really hurts me. Have you ever felt that? This really discourages me. Okay, so he wants you to give him everything except the stuff that really discourages him. He wants you to trust him. And really trust him. With all your heart. Leaning on him. And not on your own understanding. In all your ways, family, you acknowledge him. And he will direct your paths. And this, according to Proverbs 3.8, will bring healing to your body and health to your soul. Are you struggling with self-esteem? Stop looking in the mirror and look at Jesus. That's too simple. I know, but it's the only thing that's going to work. Live for him. Okay, you get it? Get the text? Okay, let's pray. Father, take the words of man and Mark and make them fade away. And I pray that these truths in this scripture will endure forever. Today, you answered the question, who is Jesus? The answer is everything. Our Savior and our Lord.
and our inheritance and our promise keeper and our hope and our life. Help us submit to all of those areas. In Jesus' name, amen. Bible study is going to start in five minutes. If you'd like to pray, I'd love to pray with you.